0: You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org/media. If you would please join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. If you're here with us for the first time, we are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew Each Lord's Day, and we have arrived at the 11th chapter we're going to read this morning, beginning with verse 1 down to verse 6. Matthew chapter 11, we read beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask his blessing. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the joy that is ours this morning to be together each Lord's day is a blessing to us, a joy to us to gather with your church, or even on those days where perhaps some here have struggled to get here, and maybe where desire has not yet met up with duty, so that we come obediently, even when our emotions are not cooperating or our physical nature is not cooperating. Lord, even on those days when we're done and we leave, we're so grateful for how you met with us in mercy and how even where we struggled, we were blessed in our doing. We ask for your blessing this day, Lord. We thank you for the songs that we've sung. We thank you for the privilege we've had to raise our voices together and to give you praise as a community of believers. And now as a community of believers, we Open our Bibles together and we give you our attention and we ask you to be our teacher. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is our teacher and we ask that his sword this day would go deep into our hearts. I know there are many needs represented in this room. It's already been mentioned, Lord, some are in need of salvation. Some are saved, but they're in need of repentance. No doubt many are here who are in need of encouragement, strength. Some are confused, in need of guidance. Some are sad, some are joyful. And I'm so grateful to know, with such a variety of needs represented, your work, Lord, is sufficient. Your power is sufficient. Your word is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient for every need represented. So, Lord, would you work in this next hour in a way that gives you glory and is good for your sheep? and calls the lost to salvation. We'll give you thanks for what you accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen. The greatest of God's redeemed servants are still just servants. The greatest of God's redeemed servants are still just people. We're all partakers of the same humanity. We are all subject to the same frailties, to the same failures. Some are more mature than others. Some have been tested more than others and proven as a result more than others. Some are more consistent than others. Some are more fruitful than others. Our Lord acknowledged this when He talked about the fruit of salvation, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. But when all is taken into account, there's a reason for the saying that we've all heard at one time or another, The best of men are men at best. The best of men are men at best. Here is our Lord paying the highest tribute that could be paid to a redeemed sinner when He talks about John the Baptist. In the 11th verse, our Lord said this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, Quite a tribute, isn't it? Could you imagine the Lord saying something like that about you? Of everyone who's ever been born up to this time, this one is the greatest one who has ever lived. But then you notice at the end of the verse, he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John is great, but he's living in a different era than we're living in. And on that side of the resurrection of Christ, on that side of, the fulfillment of salvation's promise in the Old Testament. John is the greatest, but he's not blessed in the way that you and I have been blessed. And so in some sense, what Jesus says about John is a commentary on John's role in salvation history. John is great because of privilege. John is great because of the privilege God has given him by the role that he was chosen for. The opportunity he had to serve. But Jesus also makes clear that it wasn't just John's privilege, privileged, you know, role in service, that spoke of his greatness. His own character was something to behold. Notice in the seventh verse it says this: "As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind?" What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, and more than a prophet. Not a reed shaken by the wind. Not a man dressed in soft clothing. That has to do with John's character. John comes out of the wilderness filled with the Spirit of God. He was a bold, confrontational, unflinching witness to the Messiah. He would address the Pharisees and the Sadducees just as directly as he would anybody else. Faithful as a messenger of God. Courageous as a messenger of God, which is why he's in prison when we arrive at this 11th chapter. John dared to confront a king. In fact, in the 14th chapter, Matthew will tell us why John was in prison, and he tells us how John died. If you want to just flip over and look at Matthew 14, look what it says in the third verse. Matthew 14, verse 3 says, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. John addresses Herod's sexual immorality. And he does it in an ongoing way. And and finally it reaches a point where he's in prison for it. And he dies in that prison. We'll deal with more of the specifics when we get to the 14th chapter. Just look at verse 10. The Bible says he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. So this is a a man bold by the Spirit of God, courageous, faithful, kings or commoners. He's going to tell the truth. Not a man you would characterize, that you would associate with doubt. Not a man characterized by doubt, not a man we would associate with doubt, which is why what we find in this 11th chapter is not what we expect. Beginning with the 11th chapter, we're going to meet with a series of encounters in which Jesus was doubted or denied. Up to this point in Matthew, we've been given scene after scene after scene, which demonstrates the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth. This is the Son of God. This is the promised Messiah. But now beginning in chapter 11, we're going to meet with rejection, doubt, denial. Now those doubts and those denials are answered. But nonetheless, what we would not expect is that the first voice to express doubt would be the very one chosen to announce Jesus. The very first voice of doubt comes from the very one chosen to prepare his way. You wouldn't expect the messenger to send messengers to confirm the identity of Jesus. Are you the one? Or should we look for someone else? If anybody will stand with Jesus to the death, Peter says it's him. Yet he ends up denying Jesus three times. If anybody will speak for Jesus without doubt, you would think it would be John the Baptist. And yet here we find John lacking certainty toward the end of his life. Here's the good news in that. In a very strange but powerful way, this magnifies Jesus. You say, how? Well, because it's not the messenger who upholds Jesus. In the end, it's Jesus who upholds his messenger. Jesus is not who he is because John says so. Jesus is who he is because he is who he is. John simply recognized that. John announced that. John didn't make Jesus. Jesus made John. So that even though John introduces Jesus, when you come to the end of John's life, it is Jesus who has to uphold John. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? The singular greatness of Jesus. That no matter how great the servant, they're still just a servant. No no matter how great the man of God, there's still a man. that, That all of us who have been saved, it's not us making Jesus who He is. It's Jesus making us who we will be. We don't uphold Him. He upholds us. He has saved us. He sustains us. He keeps us. In faith, to the very end. And if He didn't keep us, we would be lost If Jesus simply forgave you of all your sins and then said, now from here on out, you have to keep it. You would be in just as hopeless a condition as if he had told you to earn it. If you have to earn it on the backside of forgiveness, you're just as hopeless as if you had to earn it on the front side of forgiveness. The Lord Jesus upholds us every step of the way, forgives us of all of our sins, all of our sins, past, present, and future, and then keeps us in faith to the very end. So this morning, as we look at these verses, we're going to think about how Matthew presents Jesus as the one who upholds His messengers. How does Matthew present Jesus as the one who upholds His messenger, John, but, but in, in ex- by extension, how He upholds all of His messengers? How does He uphold us? Four things I want to point out. The first one is this. Notice Christ's activity. Christ's activity, verse 1. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to His 12 disciples, you remember He's sending them out on their first solo mission. It's a training mission. They're out on their own. They're going to come back and report, and He's going to teach them through this. He's given them instructions. He has filled their expectations with the knowledge they're going to be opposed He has told them how to live their lives in fear of God, not in fear of man. After He gives them their instructions and sends them out, He, Jesus, departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. As His men are out active preaching for Him, Jesus is also active. He goes on with His ministry. He goes on preaching and teaching. It's good for us to remember that as our Lord is making His way to the cross, where He will... serve as our sin sacrifice, when you think about His earthly ministry, Jesus is preeminently a preacher and a teacher. You say, well, what about His miracles? What about the miracles that He did? Yes, we're going to see those referred to in a moment, but those miracles serve only to affirm and confirm the message. He is preaching. He is teaching. He is preaching in the open air, in their villages, in their cities, and he's teaching in their synagogues. This tour that's being referred to, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. We're talking about Galilee. His men are sent out. He now begins to preach throughout Galilee in their cities, in their villages, in their synagogues, declaring the message that was given to him by his father. Jesus is the faithful preacher. He delivers the words that were given to him to deliver. And that message that he was given to deliver has to do with man's sin and man's need for salvation and Christ himself as the Savior given to men. There's the twofold message that you're a sinner in need of salvation and Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the only Savior given to mankind. He is God with us. The world met its creator face to face. As the eternal Son of God took to himself an additional sinless nature, a human nature, so that now we have the God-man who lived on this earth we met with our Creator face-to-face, and He's the one who takes away sins. John chapter 7, verse 7, The world cannot hate you, Jesus said, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. There's that element of the message. Your works are evil. Jesus went out declaring these things. You're sinners. John 8, 28, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. I'm giving you the words the Father gave me to give to you, that you might know that you're a sinner and that you might know that I'm the Savior. John 10, 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works... That I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Now, Now there's that third element we've talked about the miracles that Jesus performed, the works that he did. They were meant to confirm the message. I've told you who I am. You're not listening to me. You won't believe me. But the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You are meeting with God face to face. I and the Father are one. Three distinct persons, but one true and living God who has eternally existed in those three persons. One divine nature. Jesus says, I, I'm He. I'm the one who came to save you from your sins. And if you're not hearing that, it's because you're not among my sheep. I came to save my sheep they hear my voice they believe me john 12:49 for i have not spoken on my own authority but the father who sent me has given him who has, has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak john 14:10 do you not believe that i am in the father and the father is in me The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. He preached a message that demonstrates man's sin, that presents himself as the Savior, that gives humanity His true identity. He's the eternal Son of God come to earth, the only Savior given to mankind, and all of His works, testify to the truthfulness of that message. And the distinguishing mark of His sheep, the distinguishing mark of those whom He saves is they believe this message. They believe it. John 17, verse 8, For I have given them the words, our Lord praying to His Father, praying on our behalf, on behalf of those whom He had saved and those whom He would save. I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I just want to ask before we move on to the second point. Have you believed him? Have you believed his message concerning your sin? Do you know yourself to be a sinner? Do you know that you can't save yourself? Do you know that salvation... Is not a matter of, of you working your way to heaven. Do you know it's a free gift? Do you know what the standard is, God's absolute holiness? I mean, if you were to try to work your way into heaven, you would have to be holy as God is holy. And all it takes to ruin that is one sin, just one It could be in the realm of your thoughts, or in the realm of your attitudes, or in the realm of your words, or in the realm of your behaviors. But one sin would doom you forever. Do you know that? Do you know that, that therefore, the only way for us to be saved is God had to provide the solution. And His solution was a sinless, sin sacrifice, a man who would save mankind, who would be the head of a new human race, a redeemed human race, And that man is the eternal son who took to himself that human nature to save us from our sins. Do you believe Jesus when he tells you who he is, what he did, what it accomplished, and how you receive it? And the way you receive it is by faith. It's by faith. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the one and only Son of God and you will be saved. Believe him about your sins. Believe him as Savior. Believe him in a way that acknowledges him now as Lord. You come to Him for who He is. You don't make Him who He is. You simply acknowledge Him for who He is. And all the works that He did that are testified to us in the Holy Scriptures, all the miracles and all the rest, it's a voice saying to us, don't you recognize He was telling the truth? He's telling the truth. Have you believed Him? Have you believed Him? The second thing we see as our Lord upholds His Messenger, Because I want you to see something, dear ones. Listen, that activity of Jesus is necessary for what He's about to do with John. Apart from our Lord's life and ministry, what He's about to do with John would not be possible. So this is strategic. This is essential. Our Lord's activity is essential for the assurance of His servant. Notice John's apprehension, verse 2 and 3. Now, when John, in prison, heard of the works of Christ... He sent word by his disciples. So John had disciples. John had people who, men, who learned at his feet. And from among those disciples, he sends an entourage, he sends a group to meet with Jesus. Verse 3. And here's what they said to him Are you the one who is to come? Which is to say, are you are you truly the Messiah? Are you truly the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? What does this represent? It represents the fact that John needed help. John needed help. John has been in prison for many months, maybe up to a year. It's clear from our text that John's disciples during this time of his imprisonment, that they had access to him. And they're giving him reports about the one whom John had announced, had introduced, Jesus of Nazareth. So here is John keeping up with Jesus, keeping up with the light of the world while he sits in the darkness and the loneliness of a pit. Here's this man who was, if there was ever an outdoors man, it was John the Baptist dressed in rough clothing, surviving on locusts and wild honey. I mean, this is an outdoors man who is now locked up in a prison. And the only access he has to the light of the world whom he's announced are these reports that he receives from his disciples about what Jesus is doing. And what you find is he has reached a point where he's confused. And no doubt, I don't think we're stretching it too far at all to say he was apprehensive. He's anxious. There's a fear present in John's heart. The fear has to do with this, have I misunderstood? Have I missed it somehow? Why? Why is John confused? Why does he all of a sudden lack certainty? Well, because he's in prison. This is not what you would expect if you were the chief witness for the king who triumphs. If, you're, if the king is going to triumph, why am I in prison? And as I hear these reports about his ministry, what I'm not hearing Is someone ready to usher in the kingdom? I'm hearing about these activities, but where is judgment? And where is the turning upside down of the present order? And where is the ushering in of this kingdom we've expected? I think we can put it simply and say it this way. He is confused because things are not progressing as John expected. He had expectations. He had things that he had envisioned, no doubt, in his mind. And it wasn't going in the way that he expected. For just a moment, let's shift to our own lives and, and acknowledge isn't this usually what is happening to us when we're struggling with doubts? Something is not going the way that we expected. Our expectations are disappointed. The way we've envisioned things working out, it's not going that way. And so we begin to wrestle with the Word of God. This is how you instruct me to think. This is how you instruct me to feel. This is how you instruct me to live. And Lord, to the best of my ability, I believe I have done that. But this is what's happening. And it's not what I would have expected for an obedient life. Sometimes doubt creeps in when people come to the end of their journey. John knows he's on the very doorstep of death. Doesn't know when, doesn't know how, but he recognizes he's in a bad place. The prospect of your earthly end has a way of making you evaluate... How you've spent your opportunities. It's about to come to an end. Now, did I get it right? Could it be that I'm going to die in this prison and I've somehow failed at my calling through misunderstanding? Are you the one? Or shall we be looking for somebody else? What do you see when you see John the Baptist? Like this. What do you see? Let me point out a few things that I think will encourage you, encourage my heart. First of all, you see that doubt can be experienced by a believer. I mean, it's right as John is doubting. Christ is sending word back to John through these disciples, but John hasn't received that yet. We've not seen John's response to his disciples once they report what Jesus says. We don't know how John responded. The Bible doesn't tell us. So we're seeing John right in the midst of his confusion, yet Jesus, as he sends those disciples back to John, he speaks to the crowds, and what does he do? He praises John. Jesus doesn't treat John like a defector. He doesn't treat John like an unbeliever. John's a believer. Can believers struggle with doubt? Can believers struggle in their faith? Psalm 73 says yes. Psalm 73 verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Read Psalm 73, you'll see a man who saw what seemed to him to be wicked people prospering and godly people suffering. He says his feet had almost stumbled, his steps had almost slipped. I mean, this is someone who is struggling to such a degree It's like he's about to slide out of the place of faith. The complaint of the prophet Habakkuk says that believers can struggle in faith. Habakkuk first verse says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence? And you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? He's on dangerous ground, isn't he? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. What's Habakkuk saying? Where are you, God? Now read the rest of the book. Just as God did with Asaph, so He does with Habakkuk. God is going to answer these questions. But but can a believer struggle, you see? The book of Job says yes. Job 40, verse 1, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. You know how the Lord lovingly, but mockingly deals with Job. Job, you answer. I'll just sit and listen to you. You instruct me. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. See, there's there's faith, isn't it? There's a believer. Job was struggling to the degree that he's a fault finder with respect to God. But when the Lord reproves him, Job listens. When the Lord takes Asaph into the sanctuary and reveals to him the end of the wicked, Asaph turns. Habakkuk listens. John the Baptist says yes. Believers can struggle with doubt. Something else we see as we look at John, not only can doubt be experienced by a believer, doubt can be experienced by extraordinary believers. You see, I can understand the babies in Christ struggling with doubt. I can understand the people you know, who are sort of common in the way they serve the Lord. I can understand them struggling with doubt. But John is the greatest man who's lived up to that time. He's not an ordinary believer, if I can say it that way. He's an extraordinary believer. He is the one chosen by God, chosen by God to introduce the Messiah. And he's struggling with doubt. You might have preached the Word of God for 40 years. Don't think that you are without the capacity to struggle with doubt. You may have been a believer for 60 years. Don't think that you've reached a point where you don't need the Lord Jesus to uphold you. Doubt can be experienced after many proofs. This is the most amazing thing to me about doubt in my own life and in your life. It's how we have this capacity to doubt after the Lord has demonstrated His faithfulness to us again and again and again, most of the time in the very same realm. I mean, it's not like you're dealing with, you know, This kind of issue over here, and God has proven Himself, and now there's a new kind of issue, so you struggle with doubt. No, no, no. I'm talking about an area where God has already proven Himself to us again and again and again. And in that very same area, here comes a new test, and we fall apart as if He's never, ever shown us anything. How do we do that? Well, because we're human. We're frail. We are redeemed sinners still dealing with our unredeemed humanists, still not glorified. You see, we're not God. We're saved people. How often do you find yourself doubting in the darkness what God has shown you in the light? You finish your quiet time, you're reading in some psalm that celebrates the faithfulness of God and has watched care over your life, and you leave your front door with joy in your heart and a bounce in your step until the phone call comes that announces something that's gone wrong, where did the joy go? Where did the confidence go? Where did the peace go? How often is it that what God has shown you in the light, you begin to lose in the darkness? Well, John was given testimony in the light that should have never allowed this doubt. In all likelihood, I don't know how it could not be this way, John had to have heard about Jesus through the testimony of his parents. Mary, the mother of our Lord, and Elizabeth, John's mother, they were relatives. And both had a role to play with respect to the birth of the Messiah and then the birth of His forerunner. They were together on this. They knew about this together. John would have heard about this. Luke 1.39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth knows that Mary's child is the Messiah. And John would have grown up knowing this. But then in addition to the testimony of his parents, there was the direct testimony from God that John had. In fact, when you listen to John's testimony about Jesus, John's testimony included this supernatural testimony from God. John 1.29 says this, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God! I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In in, in some way, through the passing of years and the distance of these two men, John needed this supernatural revelation and confirmation that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. And John says he received that testimony. That he saw something given to him by God that confirmed that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that Jesus is the Son of God. How can you be confused? How can you utter these words? Are you the one? Or should we look for someone else? When you have had... Natural testimony about Him, no doubt from your parents. Supernatural testimony about Him from God Himself that would have included a vision of some sort that confirmed the identity of Jesus. How can you doubt this now, John? Well, I think a part of it had to do with John's own message, what John was given to declare as he was, as he was declaring the fullness of what the Messiah will accomplish when everything is finished. Again, we talked earlier about the two comings of Christ, the first coming and the second coming, and how in the Old Testament, sometimes in the same context, those two comings are put together, and how confusing it was for Old Testament saints. So as John declared Jesus, he's not just declaring a Savior, John is declaring a judge. He's not just declaring liberty for the captives, he's declaring fire upon the enemies of God. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Let me just rewind just a bit. Hear again what John said. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees right? Judgment is about to come. And he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He is going to save and he is going to judge. He is going to give the Holy Spirit and he is going to clear his threshing floor and he's going to judge with unquenchable fire. So, despite all the proofs that this is the Messiah, no doubt what John is thinking is where's the fire? Where's the fire? Where's the judgment? Why am I in prison? Why is Herod and Herodias, why are they able to delight over my imprisonment? Why are the enemies of God prospering right now and getting away with this? What is going on? D.A. Carson said this, It was all right to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, still storms, preach righteousness, and announce the kingdom. But where was the judgment? Had the corruptions and cruelties of Caesar been abruptly shut down? Had the hypocritical temple leaders been banished? Had the disgusting corruptions of Herod Antipas been confronted? Why was he, John the Baptist, languishing in the stifling heat of the prison at Macarius Fortress for challenging the morals of Herod while Jesus, the alleged Messiah, did nothing about this injustice? Believers experience doubt. Extraordinary believers experience doubt. And extraordinary believers can experience doubt even after many proofs that should have taken away their doubt. There's something else I want you to see as we think about John is apprehension. Believers experience doubt in faith, and they address their doubt in faith. Now, I know that sounds like a contradiction but it's not. There's a kind of doubt that characterizes unbelievers and it's not the kind of doubt that believers know. Believers experience doubt, but we experience doubt in faith. And we address, as a result, we address our doubts in a way that demonstrates faith. Don't forget this. As John is doubting He sends his disciples to Jesus. He's asking Jesus if he, John, has misunderstood something. Now, if you're going to ask Jesus whether he's the one or we should look for someone else, you must think Jesus is trustworthy. You must believe you're going to get the straight answer. You must believe the answer is trustworthy or you wouldn't send messengers to him. In fact, what I believe was going on is John does believe that he's the Messiah. John doesn't believe he's misunderstood. This is doubt looking for help. Or we could say faith looking for help. I believe I've got it right. Lord, would you confirm it? I haven't missed it, have I? I haven't misunderstood, have I? If I have, would you tell me? Very much like that man who asked Jesus to deliver his son from a demon. Describes what the demon has done to his son. And then the man says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, what? Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. When we doubt, what do we do? We ask God to strengthen our faith. In fact, our doubts are not about God and not about truth. At the end of the day, they're really about us. God, I know, I believe that what you have said in your word is true. I believe you are exactly who who you've described yourself to be. Why then am I in the condition I'm in? What's wrong with me? John MacArthur says, John was not questioning The truthfulness of God's word is revealed in the Old Testament or is revealed to him at the baptism of Jesus. He was rather uncertain about his understanding of those truths. I've seen the truth, but have I somehow misunderstood the truth? So you have Christ's activity. You have John's apprehension. Third, notice Scripture's assurance. Scripture's assurance, verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, notice, Jesus answers John's doubts. He doesn't treat those doubts as something just to be dismissed. Nor should we. Dear ones, listen. Doubt is dangerous. Weakness of faith is is dangerous. In fact, if you don't address it, it's going to lead, if you're a true believer, and you don't address it, it's going to lead you into places you never thought you could go. And the Lord won't allow you to stay on that road forever. He he corrects, He scourges every son whom He receives. If you've been struggling in your faith, you cannot ignore it. You have to address it. Again, MacArthur was helpful on this. He said, Though the Lord understands the doubts of His children, He is never pleased with their doubt because it reflects against Him. While Peter was pondering the vision of the unclean animals, the messengers from Cornelius arrived at the house where he was staying, and the Holy Spirit said to Peter, Behold, three men are looking for you, but arise, go downstairs and accompany them without misgiving." That is, without doubt, Acts 10, uh, 10, 19, and 20, James warns believers that the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. But the doubt of which John the Baptist was guilty was the result of weakness rather than sin. There's a kind of doubt we struggle with when we're living in sin, but that's not John. John's struggling with a doubt because of, of the difficulty of his circumstances. So how does Jesus answer John's doubt? He sends the disciples back with a report of his activity. That's why I said his activity is essential to the assurance that he gives John. Go tell John what's happening here. Go tell him that the blind are receiving sight, and the lame are walking, and the lepers are are cleansed, and the deaf are hearing, and the dead are raised up. And go tell him that the poor are having the good news preached to them, and everything he tells the disciples to go tell John. These things are actually happening. This is, this is reality. But, listen, it's being described in a way that Jesus knows John will recognize. You go tell him what you're seeing and describe it in the way I'm telling you. Because when John hears this, he's going to match it up with what he knows from Scripture. And he's going to recognize that the very things that I'm doing are the very things the Old Testament says the Messiah will do. For example, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and on it goes. I mean, those words, Jesus is fulfilling. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 35, verse 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And on the the Messiah's ministry and life are described. Go tell John what you're seeing because when he hears it, he's going to match it up with Scripture and he's going to know, no, John, you you don't have it wrong. By the way, what a testimony to the power of, of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, that when a struggling servant needs encouragement, the Lord of glory points him to the Scriptures. What do you need when you're going through your struggle? You need the Word of God. You need to go to the Word of God. Thank God for voices, human voices, who say it's going to be okay, and they encourage you. All of that is useful. But what you need more than anything else is to be reminded of what Holy Scripture says. When John needs help, Jesus gives him Scripture by pointing him to what he's doing in a way that will take his mind to the promises regarding the Messiah. Fourth thing we see, last thing. Notice faith's affirmation. Faith's affirmation. You have Scripture's assurance. Now faith's affirmation, verse 6. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. This is actually a compassionate warning. Amazing, isn't it? You have a beatitude focused on Jesus. Blessed is he, spiritually prosperous. How blessed is the one who does not take offense at me, and Jesus is speaking. That's, that's saying to John, you have it right. I am the one. I am the Messiah. I mean, who else could say such a thing? Blessed is the one who's not going to stumble over Bill. I mean, you can't, you can't say that because Bill's just a guy. Or Bob is just a guy. Or Sally's just a lady. There, there are no beatitudes associated with us. But blessed is the one who's not offended at Jesus because he possesses the singular authority of the Son of God. John, you don't have it wrong. You don't need to look for another. But then he includes these words Blessed is he who does not take offense at me, to to scandalize, to stumble over. Don't stumble over me, John. Don't be offended by me. What he's saying in a very compassionate way is this, John, you've got to trust me even when what I do doesn't match your expectations. You've got to trust me when it's not working out the way you envisioned it. You don't have it wrong. You have it right. Therefore, you must trust me. Blessed is the one who who trusts me. So how does the Lord of glory uphold his servant? By ministry that answers his doubt. By compassion on him when he has his doubt. By answering his doubt with Scripture and by warning him about that doubt even as he affirms his faith. And in that way at the end of his life the greatest man who ever lived to that time was proven just to be a man and the one he announced had to uphold him. And he does. The best of men our men at best. We have trusted in the one who has forgiven our sins and made us God's people. And when it's all over, what's going to be revealed is that the story is not how great you and I were, but how great our Savior is. As we will see, all eternity will reveal we didn't uphold Him. He upheld us. He saved us and He kept us and sustained us in our faith to the very end. Anybody hearing me today who's been struggling with doubt? Anybody hearing me who's been struggling in your faith? Anyone hearing me who could say with Asaph, "My, my steps are stumbling, my feet are slipping. It's like I'm about to slide out of the way. What do you do? Admit it. Go to the Lord with it. Humble yourself. Stop pursuing your sins. Stop fighting against the Lord and the truth. Ask Him to help you. Tell Him, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And watch as He proves Himself faithful again and again and again to the very end. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your faithfulness to your own name and therefore your faithfulness to us. Thank you for Jesus, our Lord and Savior and King. Thank you that we don't have it wrong, we have it right. That even when we doubt, now we we doubt in faith because of what you've done in our souls. We can't walk away from your Son, because He holds on to us. We're in His hand. We're in Your hand at the same time. Forgive us, Lord, where we don't honor You in faith. Forgive us where we do struggle, but help us. For Your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.